realize it or not, our lives rise and fall based on our belief in one single statement, and that statement is this, in the beginning, God. I ran across a novel this week, and I want to uh, read part of that. This is from Before We Were Yours. Uh, it's a biographical novel. I want to read a passage to you. It says, I, I understand loyalty to the family all too well. It's the very thing that has driven me here in the middle of the night. Thank you, I say, as if that will help. He needs an eyebrow with his fingertips and nods reluctantly. Just so you know, it may make things worse, not better. There's a reason why my granddad spent so much of his time helping to find people. What's going on in that story? I have no idea. I've never read it. I just bought the novel. I opened it up to the middle, and I read you that passage from the middle of the novel. I don't know the characters. I don't know the background. I don't know the circumstances. Nothing. I know nothing about that novel. Now, I could try to figure it out, and I could try to put things together, but the truth is I would just be guessing because I, I have no idea. We can't go into a novel halfway through and think that we're going to be able to make sense of what's happening, just like we don't go into a movie after it's already been playing for an hour, and we don't go in and take a seat, because we've already missed the who and the what and the why and the where and the when, yet... For many of us, life feels a lot like that we have stumbled into a spiritual story, but we can't make sense of the characters around us or the plot or, or how everything in that story fits together. It's confusing and it's frustrating and it leaves us with lots of questions. Like we look around and we're like, is that person important in this story or in my story? Or who is important? Or, or are the thing, what are the things that are happening around me? And why are they happening? And why is that person even in my story? And we struggle to make sense of what's happening, happening around us. John Eldridge is an author. Listen to what he wrote on this topic. He said, for most of us, life seems like a movie and we have arrived 45 minutes late. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful and sometimes awful. And often it's a confusing mixture of both. And we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. It's like we're holding in our hands the pages, some pages that have been torn out of a book. And these pages are all the days of our lives, fragments of the story, and they seem important, or at least we long to know that they are. But what does it all mean? He wrote, if only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. You know, there are stories going on around us all day long, every day, some of the stories we are a part of and other stories we're just observing. But we watch these stories. We see them on YouTube when, when a service man or woman comes home from overseas and they're reunited with their families. 
We love seeing those stories. And we even put parts of our story on Facebook and blogs. We all have individual stories and we have stories that we're a part of that are larger stories with our families and friends or workplaces, with teams we're a part of. But there's a bigger story. One in which we are all a part and that story, it's that where we realize that it's more than just our account of the story. A story bigger than any of our stories and bigger than any story that we've ever heard. It's a story that involves the past and the present and the future, and yet it's a story that is ongoing. A story that is true but also mysterious. A story that involves us and it concerns us, but it's a story that is much bigger than us. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word Bible, but some of us probably equate it with a religious rule book or a collection of morality tales, or maybe we think it's an ancient text that has very little to do with our lives today. Or maybe it's just a random bunch of words with little connection and we just find it very difficult to read. At its core, the Bible is a passionate, passionate story about a passionate God on a relentless pursuit of those he loves. It's a story of a creator who watches his creation fall apart in front of him, and then he sets forth a plan to fix it and to restore it. It's a story of a father who runs to rescue his children, a story of a king who leads a charge to, uh, into battle to protect his people. It's a story that begins with God and it ends with God. And somewhere in the middle is where we find ourselves. If we understand how this story starts, and if we understand, uh, most importantly, who this story begins with, then we possibly can make sense of our lives. And we can understand that we were created by someone bigger than us, and they have placed us in a story that is larger than our own. My goal today, I'm just going to put it right out there. My goal is for you to read this one big story found in your Bible. I just want to be honest about it. Because so much of history and society has been shaped by the contents of this book. Laws have been written and based upon it. Wars have been fought over it. Governments have been founded upon its principles. People have died for it. So I think that you owe it to yourselves to see for yourselves what is inside of this book. I believe you'll be shocked to find out what's in there. But I also believe that you'll be shocked to find out what is not in there. Now, this whole church thing may be new to some of you. Maybe you've never picked up a Bible before in your life. And maybe you're skeptical. Uh, skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical of the claims inside of the Bible. Maybe you don't know if it's actually accurate or if it's really true or if it's something for you to build your life upon. But... If I'm honest with myself, I, I 
I don't just read things that I think are true. For instance, if you read the Harry Potter series, I'm sure truth was not the reason why you read that book. If you read the Hunger Games, it's not because it was based upon reality. Now, I personally feel like the Bible is true. But if you have struggle, I'm not trying to force you to believe what I believe, but I'm just simply saying, if you struggle with the truth of the Bible, don't let that be something that keeps you from reading it. My goal, my hope is that you will read the Bible. Regardless of what you believe, whether it's true or not, you don't have to agree with me that it's true. But we can, I think, agree on this. The Bible is very unique. It's the best-selling book of all time, in fact. It's the best-selling book of all time that has had more enemies than any other book that has ever been published. And yet, somehow, it has survived all of that hostility. For some reason, people have kept this book around for a very long time. Then... Think about what the Bible is about. It's not just one book. It's actually a library. It's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over the course of 1,400 years. It was written by fishermen and tax collectors, shepherds and kings, doctors, political prisoners, political advisors, farmers and poets. The Bible was written all over the place, in the wilderness, in dungeons, in prisons, from Europe uh, to Asia Minor, all over. The Bible is so vast, written in Africa, Asia, and Europe. Let's think about the Bible from a publishing standpoint for just a moment. It's the most successful literary creation ever. It's more influential than Shakespeare or any other of the great writers. It is completely international. Think about the translations. Translations of great literary works. There's the, uh, the philosopher Homer from Greece. He has been translated into over 40 languages. Shakespeare. Shakespeare's been translated into 60 languages. And there's that great literary piece, that timeless piece, Harry Potter. <laughs> it's been translated into 67 languages. But the Bible, isn't that crazy? Harry Potter translated into more languages than Shakespeare. But the Bible has not been translated into 40, not 60, not 67 languages. The Bible has been translated into over 2,400 languages, 10 times more than any other book ever published. It's every publisher's dream. The Bible sells over 100 million copies a year. That's interesting. That should make, all of that should make us stop and take notice whether or not you believe the Bible is true or not. It should make you stop and take notice. There's history and poetry and teaching and letters and urgent exhortations by, uh, by prophets. Amazingly, 
From all of that, one seamless story emerges from all those pages, and it's the story of a God on the most daring rescue mission ever told to redeem his creation, the one he loves from the clutches of the enemy. So now, let's jump back to our lives today for a moment. You know, we live in a reality that's riddled with questions about God's character and God's nature. Questions like, if God is really good, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why do earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes ravage the land? Why do innocent children go hungry and why do the elderly find themselves alone? When we attempt to wrestle with these questions without going back to the beginning of the story, we run into problems. Before we can talk about what's wrong with the world today, we have to go back to begin with what God intended the world to be. We have to look at how it all started and who started it. And in this series, we're going to take a big step back so that we can see this bigger picture, this one big story that God is writing right now. And once we see that, we can possibly see our own lives with more clarity. Now, the Bible isn't going to answer, and I can't pretend that it will. It's not going to answer all of your questions that you have about life. We have to simply resign ourselves to the fact that there are certain questions in which we will never know the answers. But we can make sense of our lives right now if we go back to the beginning. To understand the role that we play in this vast list of characters. To discover our purpose in the plot line that God is writing. In order to do that, we have to know the intent of the author. And we also have to know the character, the character of the main character. What if? What if instead of approaching the Bible as a disconnected series of motivational statements, or instead of approaching it as a, a collection of self-help stories, what if instead we read the Bible as a story? And I don't mean some kind of fantastic fictional fairy tale. I, I mean a story of real life, real people, because this stuff really happened. It's not just a story. This is history. And if we would remove ourselves from the spotlight and put the spotlight on God, if we realize we are not the main character, God is. And if we would read the story from his perspective, what would we learn about him? A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, what comes to our minds first when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There's nothing more crucial in your life than a right understanding about God. But as we live this life here on this earth, 
and these problems, these, the lives that we live. It's natural for us to begin to filter God's character and God's nature through our personal experiences and what's happening around us. And when we do that, we begin to create a God in our... We must look at... So, to understand our stories, we must look at God's story. And to understand God's story, we must first discover his character. So as we begin this journey this morning, let's discover some of the character of God. And we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it all begins. And it states this, in the beginning, God. That verse is so familiar to us that most of us will just rush right over it. And we read it like an introduction, like there's something more important coming after it. But if we pause for just a moment and, and we reflect and we discover that in these first one, two, three, four words of the Bible, they are loaded with meaning and purpose. God is referenced in Genesis chapter 1 over 30 times. And in doing so, it is declaring the authority and ultimately that this is his story and this is about him. God is both the author and he's also the main character. And the story continues. In the beginning, God created. At the sound of his voice, galaxies were hurled into orbit and he turned his attention to a single planet orbiting a single star. And on that planet, he created light and dark, water and land, birds and fish and animals. The very first thing we learn about God is that he is creator. And he is incredibly creative. I mean the diversity, the intensity, the complexity, and yet the simplicity of his work. They all reveal God of mystery and God of curiosity and God of wonder. The world around us, everything we see points to a God who is innovative, who is imaginative, who is playful, and who is inspiring. And he is incomparably powerful as creator, as he makes, as no one else can, stuff out of nothing. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God is continually referred to and acknowledged as creator. The prophet Isaiah reminds us, God the Lord created heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks on the earth. And the, and the very end of Revelation, toward, toward, well, actually at the beginning of Revelation, chapter 4, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. We also learn that God is still today in the business of creating. The psalmist wrote, create in me a clean heart, O God. And Paul affirms that God is still creating today in Ephesians. He wrote, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And then at the end of Revelation, God himself declares, I am making everything new. So here's a key truth for us. 
about God's character and who he is. God is clearly creator. He's clearly creator. Five times in Genesis, God spoke and the elements of the world and life, he spoke life into existence. And he stepped back from his work, he examined it, and you know what? He declared it good. Not only is God creator, but what he creates is good. In the beginning, a good God created a good world to declare how good he is. Here's another key truth about God's character. He shows us that he is a creator and that he is good. His creation does. Now, before evil ever entered into the world, before suffering scarred all of mankind, before things broke, everything in this world was good. And that's how it began. And that was the author's intent. The goodness of God is an attribute that encompasses many, if not most, of his other characteristics. There's this tendency, though, that we have to question God's goodness based upon what we see around us right now today. We hold God in our judgment for the things that we consider to be his fault. We accuse God of what appears to be wrong, and we place him on trial, and we get to decide whether he is guilty or not. And we're judging his goodness. However, God is not good because of the good things that he does. Rather, everything God does is good because goodness is at the root of his character. His justice and his mercy and his kindness, his holiness, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his trustworthiness, and yes, even his jealousy are all expressions of his goodness. So this is what we learn in Genesis 1. We learn this. God is creator and he is good. And then the opening chapters of Genesis remind us of this third dimension of God's character. Here it is. Here's a key truth about God's character. He is relational. Now we're getting ready to dive deep here for just a moment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, here's what God is suggesting. He says, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds uh, uh, in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Now notice the pronouns that God chose to use here. Look at this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. This is so interesting. In the very opening verses of Genesis, God lets us know something very important. He refers him to himself in the plural sense as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all existing together as three distinct persons somehow who walk together inseparably in unity. God, 
He's saying by his very nature is inherently relational. Now there's a theological word for this. And that word is called Trinity. The Trinity is a description of this. How God is all three but yet somehow one. They, he is all three very distinct and separate but somehow one. Confused? <laughs> Absolutely. We could simplify it and attempt to give characteristics to each, but the reality is this, it is just mysterious, and it goes beyond our brain cells. Every analogy that I have ever heard that has been presented to try to describe how God is three but yet one, they all break down. People say, well, Harley, it's like water. You got water, and then water can also be steam, and water can also be ice. Yeah, it's kind of like water, but the problem is none of those can be all at the same time. Water and ice, it's not water and ice at the same time. It's not steam and ice at the same time. It's not steam and water. They're separate, completely separate. They're never one. People say, well, it's kind of like you, Harley. Harley, you're a dad, and you're, um, and, and you're a husband, and, and you're also a son. You're all three, but you're son. And I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I am those three, but I'm not separate. I'm just me. You can't separate the father Harley from the son Harley. There is no analogy, no matter how hard we try to look for one around us, that will ever describe to us our God. They are distinctly separate, but somehow God says they are one. And it is more vast and more deep than we will ever be able to explain. The Bible tells us in Genesis that all three were present at creation. It tells us the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the chaos of creation as it was being formed. Genesis 1-3 tells us that it was the Father who speaks order into the creation. And in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, it tells us that there was nothing that was made except by the Son. God somehow exists in perfect community, a community of love within himself. And love... It is a love that always seeks to expand its communion, and that's where we come in. Thus, he created human beings who were hardwired for relationship. When God looked at the man and the woman, he put his mark on them and he declared, it was very good. He had already declared that the creation around him was good. But when he created man and woman, he took it up a notch and said, it is very good. Humanity came on the scene and it became very personal now for God. The best part of creation when God created was that man and woman, they enjoyed an unobstructed, unhindered presence of God. Now here's a key truth that we learn about God's character in Genesis. 
God wants us to be in a good relationship with himself. And he wants us to be in a good relationship with one another. The beginning of this story helps us understand that God is creator, that he is good, and that he is relational. And there's one last thing that we learn. God is also an includer. Now, this is not a word that you're going to find in a lot of uh, theological textbooks, but it is unmistakable. God creates man and woman to have a perfect relationship with himself and a perfect relationship with each other. And he also gives them a job to do with a significant role to play in God's story. God told them, he said, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God actually blessed man and woman with work. <laughs> now, it's critical that we understand that work preceded the entrance of sin in this world. Work was not a curse on us. Work was not a curse for the bad choices that we made. No, nope. it is a blessing that he bestows upon those that bear his image. Work. God entrusted us and challenged us to take dominion and care over his creation. God didn't just create men and women to be extras in his story. He didn't just delegate some meaningless tasks to say, oh, that'll keep them busy, that'll make them feel important, that'll give them something to do. No, 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 no. He gave them authority. And throughout his story, we find a God who is looking for those to include in his story. He chose men like Abraham and Moses. David, ladies like Esther and Deborah and Nehemiah and Mary, men like Peter and Paul, all to be on mission with him. And get this, today he is still in the process of launching people into his story to be rescuers, to be dreamers, to be restorers, leaders, healers, liberators. God is still doing that. And this story is different than any other story because we have a part to play. And we get to make a choice for ourselves how we will be involved. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But imagine, just for a moment, what if God really exists and started it all. What if you were not an accident, but you were actually created, hand-shaped, uniquely fashioned by God? What if the world that we live in is not the world that God intended, but he is at work right now to restore it to its original goodness? And what if you have a role to play in that? How might that change everything? How might that change everything about how we view God? And how might that change everything about how we view ourselves and how we view others and how we view this world around us? 
For some of us, we're, we're reluctant. We're slow to believe in good because we don't think it's going to last. We just don't believe that it's true or, or, or we're holding back. So my question is, what is holding you back from believing the goodness of God? Whatever it is, for just a moment, would you humor me and entertain this thought that maybe, just maybe, God is more good than you ever believed he was. In the beginning, God created a good world. It was a world of of beauty. And it was filled with opportunities for adventure. And it was teeming with life. It was created to be cared for, enjoyed, and explored without sickness, without sadness, without violence, without evil, and without failure. And he created us in his image to take care of his good world and to live in it in a perfect relationship with him, in a perfect relationship with each other. But some things broke along the way. We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at what broke and how it broke and why it broke. And you can't just give a nice, clean, acceptable answer to every question about why things are wrong in this world. But we can know this. We can know that God, the God, who started it all. We can know that in the beginning, a good God created a good world to reveal to us His goodness. We can know that we were created by someone bigger than us to be part of a story that is bigger than our own. And we know that God is still good and God is still writing the big story in which we find ourselves right now. Let's pray. In the beginning, you, a good God, created a good world that reflected how good you are. Father, I, I know that you are more than any of us have ever imagined you to be. We can't understand how vast and how good you really are. But Father, thank you for inviting us into your story. Thank you that you have revealed to us what we need to know for now. Thank you for being good and weaving your goodness into your creation. And I pray that we will as individuals and we will as a church jump into your story as we discover you. Father, bless us with understanding in proportion to how much we actually pursue you into your word. And we ask that you grant only the things we pray that are in accordance with your will. Amen.